My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro journalist skill podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This is our first episode in 2023, and Lawson has picked a weird one. We have watched the horror movie, Pontypool. People call it a zombie movie, but I'm not sold. Eh, I wouldn't say zombie either. Whatever it is, it's a horror movie. Let's just leave it at that. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. I've tried to spread out some of this stuff over the next week as well, so I've Really only got two movies I saw at home, but then three movies I saw at cinemas. I'm going to start off with the cinema movies first. First up is Triangle of Sadness. This is a pitch black satire directed by Ruben Osland. It's about these obliviously awful rich people who are on a cruise. And there's all of this class tension between them and the people who are actually working on the ship. There's some choppy waters, a storm... And things start to go very wrong. This is pretty much about every social issue from the past decade that you could think of. Like, all put into a blender and put together over a pretty long runtime. It is very long. It's it's two and a half hours long. And so you do need to be connecting with what it's doing. Otherwise, you're not going to have a fun time, basically. Because it is very deliberately paced. It's thoughtful and methodical. This is a satire. It isn't necessarily... It's a comedy, but it's a it's a very dry comedy. It's it's not sort of a gag a minute. It's more coming up with these situations through really considered and really well thought out plotting and scene construction and stuff like that. The the humor comes from excavating all of that, basically. You don't laugh because someone has subverted your idea of what's going to happen. You laugh because what you think is going to happen is happening. That's sort of the difference between a comedy and a satire. Oh, I'm not sure I agree with that as a definition, but it's it's not a Will Ferrell no. kind of thing, you know. It's not like a haha kind of thing. There are a lot of funny moments in it, but it is mostly it's trying to say something. It's intricately constructed to loop in as many hot button issues as it can. You know, everything from class to politics to sexism to I mean, there are just some really striking moments. There is one particular moment that is, I think, probably the best allegory for modern politics that I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> like, it is quite... Once you realise what it's doing, you're just like, oh my god. It's very funny. It's acerbic and it's barbed. The dialogues are like these just little tightly wrapped parcels of stuff that you're, you're finding more in the more you think about it and the more that the scene goes on. And it keeps evolving as a story. It keeps going places. It's separated out into three acts, basically, with a chapter heading at the beginning of each one. And they all do really different things. The problem with that is that it kind of peaks at the end of the second act. Like, the end of the second act is one of the best sequences of the year. Like, it is really, really well done and kind of goes exactly the way you want it to in the, in the most sort of spectacular way possible. But then everything after that can't really help but feel like a letdown. And I'm still trying to figure out the ending, like the last five minutes. It's a very abrupt conclusion, which is the point. It's a choice that's been made. I'm still trying to decide whether it works the way that they want it to or whether whether it could have used a sort of more tapered off landing but great performances as well uh harris dickinson is very good in one of the lead roles and the late charlie dean is very good as well she was she's actually really a standout in the movie but she died before 
the movie came out of uh, some illness. She was very young. She was only in her like early 30s. You might know her, actually. She was um, cyanide and black lightning. But, yeah, it, it has a good sense of scale from it, too. Like, it looks more expensive than it is. It's very well shot and very well filmed. Ostland has put it together really well. It's just, It's a very striking film that I think is going to divide people who see it, but I really enjoyed it because I think it's got a lot going on under the hood. It's definitely an episode at some point. I next saw The Banshees of Inishirin, which is a dramedy directed by Martin McDonough. It is set in 1923 during the uh, Irish Civil War, but that's sort of mostly a backdrop. The action takes place on this small island called Inishirin off the coast of Ireland. And there's this slightly dumb farmer named Podrick, played by Colin Farrell. And his old friend, Colm, played by Brendan Gleeson, decides that he doesn't want anything to do with them anymore. He finds him dull, and so he just decides they don't want to be friends anymore. He just was like, you know, don't speak to me. And Podrick is baffled and confused by this, and he won't let it go. This is strong, but it's not McDonough's best, I don't think. It's got a very obvious allegory on the surface, obviously the Irish Civil War and all of that. I'm still trying to unpack the fine details because there is a lot of fine detail in there. I'm not sure it all works neatly, but there's definitely meaning to be mined. I mean, the title, Banshees of Inishirin, has a purpose within the story. The real engine that makes this thing go is Farrell and Gleason. They're a fantastic central duo. Those are excellent performances. They're reuniting, obviously, since In Bruges, which was another Martin McDonough film. And they're, they're very different characters this time around, and their relationship is different. But they've got that same chemistry where they just work together on screen. And the dialogue is excellent, as Martin McDonough dialogue always is. It's just great patter. I'm not sure I really love the story that it's all in service of, but the dialogue and the patter is excellent. And a really good supporting cast as well. Barry Keoghan is very strong and actually probably the funniest performance in the thing. But Kerry Condon is also really, really good as the the sister of Colin Farrell. And there's some very striking imagery as well, some gorgeous scenery. McDonough has really capitalised on the setting, you know, this sort of rural seaside sheep village, basically. It's just not as finely honed as some of McDonough's other work. I know this is a controversial opinion and a lot of people don't hold it, but for me, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is still my favourite Martin McDonough movie. It's the movie of his that I think is the most complete and the most exact, like exactly like what it seems like he wanted it to be. Lastly, for the stuff I saw in the cinemas, I saw Violent Night. It is a Christmas action comedy directed by Tommy Workola, and it is about Santa Claus, who is played by David Harbour. He's a disillusioned binge drinker. He's sort of over it. You know, the kids are all greedy and selfish now. He's not sure he wants to be Santa anymore. While he's delivering presents on Christmas Eve, happens upon a hostage situation at an isolated mansion. But the little girl of the family is this sweet little girl, Trudy, played by Leah Brady. She's a true believer in Christmas, and she's on the nice list, so Santa's got to help her out. And it basically turns into Die Hard, but with Santa instead of Bruce Willis. (laughs) This is incredibly entertaining. It's pretty much exactly what you want it to be. It knows exactly what it is, and it celebrates that. It understands that the premise is silly, but it doesn't doesn't act like it's above the premise either. It knows it's silly. It, it doesn't think it's stupid, though. That's a very thin line you got to walk in a yeah. movie like that. And it commits 
a hundred percent. Like there's all of these Christmas themed one liners and stuff. Like the first time Santa makes contact with the hostage takers over a walkie talkie, just like in Die Hard. But like when he signs off, he's like, Santa Claus is coming to town, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> like Christmas themed eighties one liners. Do they address elves? What are the elves like? The elves don't appear because they're all back at the North Pole and they don't really go into what the elves are, but they do acknowledge that Santa does have them. Right. They just sort of offhand mentioned the elves back at the workshop. But there's some Christmas-themed violence as well, people getting sort of stabbed with the star from atop the Christmas tree, things like that. Candy canes licked into spikes to slay yes. your enemies. Santa, Santa does at one point suck a candy cane into a spike and then use it to stab someone. Naturally. Actually, he spends the whole fight sort of sucking on it and then takes it out at the end. <laughs> It's got a really good sort of score by Dominic Lewis as well, which sampled a whole bunch of Christmas carols. That's a lot of fun. And it's very funny as well. It mines a lot of laughs from both the premise, but also the idea of a Santa who's just kind of over it. And it invents this crazy backstory for Santa. It brushes up against all of this stuff, this wild lore that they've come up with about what exactly Santa is and where he comes from and what kind of being he is in a way that like... They don't go far enough into it to really give you a lot of answers, but I, they go just enough into it that you're just like, what the hell? <laughs> they give you questions. Exactly, and that's probably the smart thing. But I found myself, I mean, they have talked about a sequel here. I know that the producers have said they want to do a sequel, and it does seem like they, it's done pretty well at the box office. David Harbour has said that he wants Mrs. Claus in the sequel and to, her to be played by Charlize Theron. Mm-hmm. But, like, going into it, this was not something I thought I'd come out wanting a sequel to. But, like, yeah, I kind of see it. Like, kind of all this <laughs> wild shit that they come up with. I want to see more of that. But a really good supporting cast as well. John Leguizamo as the lead hostage taker. Alex Hassel and Alexis Lauder as two of the parents. And Beverly D'Angelo is a scene stealer, though, as sort of the estranged matriarch that owns the mansion that everyone's in. She's sort of this foul-mouthed, very sort of cynical, nihilistic hmm. businesswoman. Would have been a great role for Carrie Fisher if she was still with us. Yeah, yeah it's it's a lot of fun. Triangle of Sadness is the best movie of the three that I saw. I think Violent Night is the most fun. Mm. At home, I saw The Stepfather. It is a teen thriller directed by Nelson McCormick. It's based on the 1987 Joseph Rubin movie of the same name. An unruly teenager, Michael, played by Penn Badgley, returns from military school. And his divorced mother, Susan, played by Celia Ward, is engaged to a new guy, David, played by Dylan Walsh. And Michael is suspicious of this guy. Things in his backstory don't seem to add up, but no one believes him about his suspicions, except for us, the audience, because in the first scene of this movie, we saw David murder his previous family and shave, change his face and go off looking for a new family to absorb. I'm familiar with the original. So am I. I saw the original and its sequels way back towards the beginning of the list before we started this podcast. I actually forgot to mention, we're going into the sixth year of my list. Wow. And I probably saw this at probably in the second year. I saw the original Stepfather movies. They're totally forgettable and they just get worse as they go on until by the end you're dealing with like, a, I think it's like an HBO original movie for with the third one and not a very good one at that. But this is very forgettable as well. It is, however, competent. 
it's the stepfather run through the Disturbia aesthetic. You know, they've made it a very much a late 2000s sort of teen thriller. And it is very teen focused. It's very much told from the perspective of Michael and his girlfriend, who is played by Amber Heard. It is very CWE in the way that it approaches a lot of that stuff. There are a few okay moments like that beginning with, you know, the family basically that he's murdered previously because he just, he wants to find the perfect family and every, he's a family annihilator. Every time the family doesn't live up to his expectations, he snaps and he kills them all. And then he changes his face and he changes his name and he moves to a different part of the country and he gets married again. But it doesn't ever really do enough to differentiate itself from all of the other sort of teen thrillers that are going on at the time. In some ways, I think it's kind of in search of an R rating. The first one was rated R, but this is a PG-13, and I do wonder if there was just... I mean, it was watered down into into what it is. Dylan Walsh is the MVP here. He is really, really good as this psychopath, and definitely if there's a reason to watch the movie, it's for him. Pam Badgley is quite good as well. There's just not much here, though, other than those performances. It is the kind of thing that is designed to play at midnight on a random cable TV channel. Lastly for this week, I saw Triangle. It is a horror thriller directed by Christopher Smith, and it follows a woman named Jess, played by Melissa George. She's gone sailing with friends, and a freak storm hits the yacht that they're on, and it capsizes, but they're all sitting on the hull of the overturned yacht. And then a mysterious cruise ship turns up, and they get on that, and they think they're saved, but no, they're actually not, because this is a ghost ship, a ghost cruise ship with a masked killer about on board that's hunting them down. This is fine, but I was kind of waiting for it to get to a point. And it seems the point is really that, oh, isn't this crazy? Isn't this loopy? Isn't this a cool Twilight zone thing? And like, yeah, but it kind of didn't sustain the whole runtime for me. I mean, plot-wise, it's the whole plot is a trick that it's playing on the audience. Hmm. And it's about playing with narrative and about playing with audience perception of narrative. And that's interesting, but it's got to have some depth to the foundation of that to sort of make it worthwhile. And I don't think this really does. It's just kind of a bunch of things that happen. The surreal tone ends up being inexplicable for the sake of it. It ends up being a Twilight Zone episode, but without the social commentary or the allegory that that made the Twilight Zone memorable. The characters are all incredibly thin, like thin as Mm. tissue paper. And then that leaves the plotting to really hold it up. And the plotting does get more intricate and interesting as it goes on, but it avoids engaging with the questions it raises in favour of, or maybe there are no answers, isn't that that creepy? Whereas, like, if done correctly, yes, but it just, it felt to me like it wasn't doing, it hadn't earned that sort of ambiguity, that it was more just like dodging the point. There is a a laughable pretense that this is set in America and not the Gold Coast of Queensland. (laughs) Like, it is such a... Such a Queensland-looking place, like all of the streets. It's obviously Australia. It should be obvious to people from the United States that it's Australia. Right right down to, like, the islands and the streets at the beginning. You know, they're just, they have, those are the Australian designs, those are the Australian design street signs and things. And it just, I don't know, there's just a particular look that I was like, I didn't know going in, but I was like, that was filmed in Queensland. It's like when we watched Winchester last year and they show a bit of outside oh, yeah, the definitely. house. I was like, those are Australian trees. I can tell instantly. And I tell you what, 
if the environment didn't give it away, the accents probably should because <laughs> none of these actors can hold a, an American accent for the life of them, except maybe Melissa George, and she's not 100% all the time. Bite the bullet set it in Australia. Well, that's the weird thing. It was a, a UK movie made in Australia about Americans set in America. Like, it wasn't an American <laughs> movie to begin with. I don't know whether it's just like they thought it would be more marketable if they made it American and could sell it like that when they're probably right. But, yeah, it's just very strange. It lands some some good moments of sort of what the fuck, but it can't generate a consistent atmosphere of it to support the story that it's telling. It's entertaining, but you can see it trying the whole way through. It's not nearly as successful as something like Ghost Ship. No. And it's just like... Actually pretty damning, because as fun as Ghost Ship is, it's kind of a trashy movie. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It's sort of emulating a style rather than trying to tell a story. It's kind of hollow in the end. But that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? It's been like a couple of weeks since we actually recorded anything. Mm-hmm. So we've ended up watching quite a lot. We're going to save some stuff for next week. The first movie we watched was Bullet Train. Yeah. Which is a incredibly stylish action film directed by David Leitch, who people would recognize as the director of Deadpool 2, in which Brad Pitt plays a career criminal known as Ladybug. He's been sent onto this bullet train in the middle of Japan so he can retrieve a briefcase. It just so happens that quite a few of the other passengers on the bullet train also have vested interest in the briefcase and the people connected to it, but have more unscrupulous methods of getting what they want done. I loved this. Mm. The style, the action, the humor of it is, it's Tarantino-esque. And I say that because it doesn't go as far as Tarantino would. It has a greater sense of physical comedy than Tarantino has. I love a great deal of performances. Brad Pitt is great in it, but he isn't the most interesting of the characters. Incredibly strong cast. You've got Joey King, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Brian Tyree Henry. He's a character called Lemon, who works with his brother Tangerine, who was played by Aaron Taylor-Johnson. And what Lemon does is he judges people off of the archetypes of Thomas the Tank Engine. Gotta find the diesel. <laughs> so the worst... He considers the worst people diesels. Mm. And that hit me really hard because we recently watched a couple of episodes and the Diesels are right proper assholes. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. You've got Hiroyuki Sonata in here and he has an outstanding fight scene over uh, the like, Japanese version of Holding Out for Hero. It's brilliant. It's just a hell of a lot of fun. That's the most I can say for it. It's it's frenetic in its pace. It's It knows what it is. It's not trying to be anything else. I really loved this as well. From the moment it begins, it has such a style and the characters are just so fantastic that I just couldn't help but love it. The performances are all fantastic, even from people who we only get like a scene from. You've got a bunch of really great performances here. Aaron Taylor-Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry have immaculate chemistry. Joey King is fantastic. Zazie Beats and Bad Bunny are also really fantastic. Their characters have so much style and personality that they really explode on camera. Bad Bunny's character is called Wolf, and they actually spend 
a good amount of time detailing his backstory. And it's the... And that sequence is hilarious because it's every single beat you expect it to be. Yeah. And Leech directs that bit with such style that I'm just sitting there laughing my ass off the whole time. And they get a lot of good stuff by the fact that this is on a populated train. In the middle of Japan, there were mascots walking up and down the train. They were just passengers. So the assassins and hitmen and mules have to pretend to be normal people. They have to hide bodies and make them seem like Weekend at Bernie's things. It's fantastic. This movie has a hell of a body count, but... It also has, like, great action. Mm. It's David Leach. He spent a lot of his career as a stunt person. Brad Pitt's He was Brad Pitt's stunt, stunt double, yeah. And he knows how to direct action incredibly well. And it felt like he was in the room with the editors. Well, he was the director, so yeah, he probably was. Well, not all directors are hands-on like that. Mm. And it's cut in a way that the action is clear, but it always keeps a fast pace. Always moving, and the action, the fight scenes are of particular note. Particularly some fights between, as you said, Hiroyuki Sonata and a secret character who we haven't mentioned. And... Brad Pitt and Aaron Taylor Johnson have a fantastic fight scene in the kitchen car of the of the train, and that's a really enjoyable sequence. I do love the character of Ladybug. He's trying his best not to get into a negative headspace. Yeah. He wants to stay positive, but his luck takes him down directions he wasn't prepared to go. And you've got fantastic villains here who have such character and charisma that they bounce off of the heroes very very well although heroes is a strong word to use Mm. it's complicated it's it's brilliant it's brilliant i couldn't stop smiling the whole movie and it's gonna be on my list there are there are many moments from the movie that are in contention to be the mole man award for physical comedy yeah and the slapstick they include in the fights is great. Yeah, yeah, we watched it on American Netflix. One yeah. of the one one of the best gags in the thing isn't even really a gag in the movie. It's that it's it's like a two hour movie on this bullet train that takes way less time to reach its stated destination than yeah. two hours. <laughs> yeah, I would highly recommend it. It's definitely going to end up on my best of the year list. Another movie that's going to end up on my list is Glass Onion: A Knives Out Mystery. Fame detective Benoit Blanc travels to Greece. He has been invited to a murder mystery party by a genius inventor, Miles Braun, played by Edward Norton, where he has gathered his friends, who are kind of like a big bunch of assholes. They're called the Disruptors. Well, they call themselves the Disruptors. That's a very important... No one else calls them that. (laughs) Again, this is the sequel to Knives Out. It's directed by Ryan Johnson. And, John, why don't you say a short piece about it first? This is brilliant. I love the construction of this movie, because it tells you what it's going to be within the first ten minutes of the film, but you only realise that it's done that when it's over. The way that this has been put together, the characters play off of each other perfectly, the actors all do a great job. Dave Bautista, Mm. Catherine Hahn, Edward Norton in a quite annoying performance, but brilliantly pitched 
And Daniel Craig is Benoit Blanc. Uh, if anything should show up on, hopefully it doesn't happen soon, on Daniel Craig's obituary, I hope it's not Bond first. I hope it's Benoit It Blanc. will be, but I think that Blanc will be the second one. I think yeah, it will be yeah. Bond and Knives Out. But... Yeah. It's just a brilliant performance, and he plays off of the new characters very, very well. The set for this movie mm. is also fantastic, and it shows how intelligent and witty Rian Johnson's script is, because everything you need to know about these characters is in the places they live, the way they dress, and their relationships with the other disruptors, quote-unquote. And it's brilliantly, brilliantly done. The central mystery is also so good that it's so good. <laughs> to talk about a lot of the really great stuff is to spoil the movie. Yeah. Mm. But safe to say that it takes a different tack to Knives Out. Yeah. It's got a very similar sense of humor and a very similar thing it's saying, but the way it says it is different. Knives Out was way more traditional. Glass Onion is a bit more on the postmodern side of things, and it gaslights you. The mm. movie actively gaslights you into... Yeah. You think you know something, and then it convinces you you don't, and then it reveals to you that you actually knew it all along, and it plays with you like that. They, and it plays fair, too. Yeah. Like it's, yes. It plays incredibly fair. It doesn't use the language of film to obscure things. It's No, it's right there in front of you. It's just the way that everything is structured. That Rian Johnson is good at having meta-commentary within a film that also has brilliant social satire. Mm. Like, I hope that this is like the Pink Panther or something, where we just end up with, like, eight or nine of these yeah. things by the time all yeah. is said and done. I would love Daniel Craig to still be doing this in his, like, in his 70s. Because it doesn't ask terribly much physically from it. That was the interesting thing. I was seeing an, an interview with Ryan Johnson where he was talking about he was he was really happy that he and Daniel Craig ended up on the same page, which was that Blunk is not the point of these movies. Blunk is really fun and he's sort of the driver, but like the point is the mysteries and all of the different mm. people that are introduced in each new movie connected to the mysteries. Blunk is the is the plot driver. Mm. But like he said like the temptation would be to like do a big thing about Blunk's backstory or the case he could never solve and, you know, flashbacks and, you know, really make it a big sort of... Make the series Benoit Blanc, not Knives Out. Give him a Moriarty, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And um, he was like, no, this this works better as sort of this contained case of the week kind of thing where you make these, like, intricate puzzle boxes and things. And he was saying how happy he was that Daniel Craig agreed with him on that, that Daniel Craig doesn't want any of that backstory as well. And you get bits and pieces of it, like they're not opposed to it. Like you get the reveal in this movie, and its I don't consider it a spoiler because it's no. been in the press a lot, that Benoit Blanc is gay and has... We're not really sure if he's his, his husband or not or whether he's a live-in partner, but has a, a male partner, which is a pretty brilliant cameo. That whole little sequence at Benoit Blanc's place where he's playing... Among us in the bath. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to say who the who his friends are that he's playing it with. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in this movie as Dom. well. Yes. Yes, he is just the voice <laughs> of Edward Norton's bizarre intercom his clock. His Philip Glass composed dong. Every, every hour, instead of like a clock chime, it's just the voice that goes, 
<laughs> and again, it's that it's thing so of stupid. And it's this choice of Gordon-Levitt. It's so dumb that it ends up being genius. Yeah. And and the name Gloss Onion is so applicable yeah. this time as well. Hmm. And so is Knives Out. Like people are like, why is it? Oh, why is it called Knives Out? Why why isn't it called a Buena Blunt mystery? And I'm like, because that's the thesis of the both yeah. of these movies so far yeah. is that it's all of these suspects who it could be any one of them and they have the knives out for each other. You know, it could be anyone because they're all shitty people who hate each other yeah. and are willing yeah. to stab each other in the back at any given moment. That's why it's knives out. The setting is gorgeous. Mm. Oh, it looks mm. brilliant. Do you see what I mean when I was saying like how they tell you so much about the characters by the way they wear yeah. their pandemic masks? Yes, yes. I got I got viscerally angry. I love yeah. Kate Hansen's birdie that it's just this mesh. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like, barely even mesh. It's got bigger holes than that. It's like almost chains. It's just like genius. I got legitimately anxious when I saw the mo- that mask. Hmm. And when um Catherine Hans' character has her nose exposed that it's just over the mouth, I was like, <laughs> ugh. Like, at least when the person's, like, not wearing a mask, it's like, okay, you, I hate, I hate it. But you've you've made this is a decision you've made. Whereas this yeah. other person's like, what are you even doing? Like, <laughs> pick a lane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're gonna be talking about this movie again. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. We're gonna be talking about it in late February when we talk about our top ten lists. Mm. It's just inevitable. It came out at the end of last year and has rearranged my list. This is why you shouldn't build the list until you've figured I haven't out built until the list. you've watched I've got all of sort them. of mental places where things have been. Oh, by by the way, we got to go see Puss in Boots, guys. Yeah, <laughs> could be on the list. <laughs> Harley Harley doesn't look very enthusiastic about that. I liked Knives Out more, but that's really just because that was the first one, and you never forget the first experience when a new franchise starts. I want Rion Johnson and Daniel Craig to be doing this for a long time coming. I mean, there's already a third one that Netflix has greenlit. I would like it if Ryan Johnson got into more of a do a Knives Out movie, then do another movie, then yeah. do another yeah. Knives Out movie. Like, one on, one off. Yeah, give us something more along the lines of Brick at some point. Yeah. Go back to the neo-noir type of thing, because I adored Brick. I know he still said that he might get to those Star Wars movies. I kind of don't want him to at this no. point. Like, like, why would you do that to yourself? Like, it's not his great strength. I love Lost Jedi. Yeah, but his strength lays in mystery. Yeah, I want the like. It's the same thing. Of like, oh, Taika Waititi's making a Star Wars movie. He might make another Thor movie. I'm like, okay, but I would like more Jojo Rabbits, please, Taika Waititi. I would like yeah. more of whatever's in your head. Also, if you're Ryan Johnson at this point, why would you subject yourself to that? Yeah, like why would losses, you? Man. Yeah, I mean, at, at one point it's kind of like maybe he's a better person than I. But if I was him, there'd be kind of a spiteful like, no, fuck you, I'm making the Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I can see that. I honestly think it comes from his genuine love for Star Wars. Yeah, that he wants to still be involved. He he wrote the best written Star Wars movie. I mean, <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> Yeah. Fair. I'll let him make the trilogy. You know, if he yeah. wants to make the trilogy, make it make it like a um like a Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings style, do it all at once and make it a murder mystery in Star Wars. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Craig, like done in alien makeup, coming in as a like a weirdly southern detective. <laughs> yes. That would be excellent. Knives out a Star Wars story. 
Yeah, Daniel Craig comes in, he's just painted pink or something. (laughs) (laughs) He's still so clearly Benoit Blanc. Yeah. Well, I did read somewhere that one of Ryan Johnson's, like, thoughts, considerations that he didn't end up going with because he thought it would be too confusing, he thought it would be too weird a joke, was that Benoit Blanc would turn up in each movie with a completely different accent, totally unexplained. And while I get the joke, I love the southern accent that Daniel Craig is doing in these movies. It's so like silly. this sort of like Kentucky Fried Colonel kind of foghorn so leghorn over the thing. Top, but he doesn't break for a moment. No, he's so consistent, and that's and, it, and it is. I've I've done a little bit of reading about it. It is apparently not an inaccurate accent. It's yeah. just an extremely specific accent. There are people yeah. out there who speak like that, but but it is. As a sound, such a caricature of what sort yeah. of aristocratic Southern Americans sound like that um, it seems like a cliche, and it is. It's not only that, it's like the big words yeah. he gets to yeah. say, they always come out so butter smooth. Is it any worse? It's, it's like it's Poirot. It's the Poirot, it's Poirot. recipe, you know? It's satisfying. It's mm. just satisfying. When you hear him explain the plot, basically. It's like he knives out the... Donuts hole in a donuts hole yeah. thing. Yeah. You're just sitting there and you're hearing him explain it and you're like, I could listen to him do this for like another hour. In Knives Out, it's like an almost uninterrupted 15 minutes. Yeah. Of him explaining, yeah. Yeah. That's like gold standard scene of the movie. It's such a good performance. I really hope that they get to keep making yeah. a lot I of like these. I like him as Bond. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I like his Bond a lot. I love his Benoit Blanc. Mm. But this like seems like a really like something they could really return to as years go on. Like you can go five years without making one and then check back in and Yeah. Or you could do like, you know, three movies in five years. I mean it supports a lot. It's just And, and plus, like you're always gonna find actors interested. Yeah. And Ryan Johnson's got that um he's he's clearly decided that he's in a mystery mood. He's got that mm. Peacock series Poker Face yes. coming out this year. Which stars Natasha Lyonne. I've seen the trailers for that, yeah. Yeah, it is more of a classic sort of mystery of the week kind of thing, except because it's Ryan Johnson, every episode is full of really famous people. <laughs> He's collecting them like Pokemon. We need a John Lithgow. We need John Lithgow in Nice. John Lithgow and Joseph Gordon Levitt in live action together in one of these things. Or do you think we and Johnson is just going to hold off? <laughs> I don't know, maybe like crossover with Brick. Maybe it's that same character. <laughs> that would be outstanding. I think it would be great if Kenneth Branagh showed up in one of these hmm. as Ooh. like the bad guy. No, if he shows up like as like an idiot. That as like a doofus. Yeah, parody Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's the thing that makes this so interesting is like it, it is such a great showcase for the actors it wasn't the first movie it is in the second that it's basically like locking a bunch of really talented actors together in a drawing room with a really good script and letting them bounce off of each other it's like murder on the orient express and death on the nile it's the same idea except those movies are more serious yeah Yeah. the knives that moves are just a lot of fun yeah i had a great time with glass onion you can find that obviously on netflix as it is in netflix original so we also watched another movie, not from this year, from the year prior. A movie where, unlike Knives Out and Glass Onion, the longer it goes on, like, the stupider it becomes. Like, legitimately the dumber it becomes. We watched The Tomorrow War. So it follows a family man who has been drafted to fight in a future war, where the fate of humanity relies on his ability to confront his past. 
The world is fighting a losing battle against a multitude of fierce and unstoppable extraterrestrial invaders, and humankind is living on borrowed time. Amid the chaos and impending Armageddon, they go back in the past, and instead of actually just building up the defenses and trying to find out where these things are going to land, they basically throw past people into the meat grinder. Which is weird. The the more you think about this movie... Just to be more specific here, like, they, they are conscripting people from the past to fight drafting. in this war in the future. Yeah. yeah. It's like a forced conscription. And, and it's like... And they only give them a week's worth of training, and it's like, it's so silly. It's so silly. Chris Pratt, J.K. Simmons, Betty Giblin, and Yvonne Strahovski are in this movie, and all of them do very passable jobs. Chris Pratt is actually pretty good here, when he's been given some of the more mind-bendy stuff to work with. He has a really good scene... I think it was really cool how he tipped us off that he was going to be playing Mario by very subtly doing the Mario voice. Yes, yes. (laughs) His entire career, he's been hinting at it. And finally, it's like a lifelong dream. It's like, well, of course. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) fuck me right for not noticing it, but sure. (laughs) Mushroom Kingdom, here we come. This movie could have been so much better. There are so many ways that this movie could have really hit on what seems to have been the theme that they were going for, but it devolves into just hail of gunfire and literally one interesting scene, and that is so upsetting to me. I could have sworn years back I listened to a creepy pasta that was exactly this premise. Hmm. Like, down to a war in the future where they can script people from the past to fight in it. I could have absolutely sworn I listened to that. Well, it's an old thing. Like I've read short stories that are, have very similar premises. Like it's yeah. it's not particularly new. The sort but of... it is an interesting premise, at yeah. least. And we'd never seen it on the big screen this way. It's just a shame it comes out really dumb this way. And the more I see of Chris Pratt, the less he impresses me. Well, he has like two modes. He has Peter Quill and Andy Dwyer. And that's it. No, I think he has two faces. Witty and moping. <laughs> no, not moping. Pouting. This movie was teeing up such an interesting plot twist that I was begging them to do, but they whiff it. And that made me so upset. Chris McKay knows how to direct this action. Oh yeah, the action looks fantastic. I do love the design of the aliens, the white spikes. Yeah. Even though, later into the movie, it kind of goes alien or aliens Mm. and that's kind of lazy that's what i can say about this it's not awful it feels like a first draft movie yeah they are making a sequel apparently like it did really well for amazon it was originally supposed to come out theatrically it was a paramount movie but then the pandemic hit and they sold it to amazon yeah so instead of the tomorrow war is it like the two days from now war they haven't they haven't really said much except chris mckay says he wants to explore the aliens more. Why? There's nothing to explore, Chris. Maybe that's why he wants to explore them more. Maybe he wants to give them dimension that they didn't have in the first movie. Mm. I mean, I guess, mate. Also, the Lorne Balfe score comes in really hard in scenes where it doesn't make any sense. The music (laughs) editor for this movie... There's a scene where they're tensely walking through a hallway when they've been yeeted into the future, and it's, it's like action music. It's like intense action music you'd expect in a action scene. 
but they're just walking through a hallway holding their guns at the ready. It, it doesn't it doesn't fit. Yeah. There's also this theatrical Blade Runner level awful voiceover at the end. Oh uh, yeah. You can tell that Chris Pratt is not there for it. <laughs> he just doesn't want to be doing that voiceover. And I don't know, it just comes off as kind of lame. Yeah. A lot of comparisons were drawn to Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow is so much better. Which I consider just straight up a good movie. Oh yeah, people love Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, people love Edge of Tomorrow. I just enjoy it. But if you're going to do a sci-fi war movie with a vaguely interesting premise to do with time, just watch that one. Mm. It's more impressive. Plus, the creature designs are cooler in that. We found that on Amazon Prime. Didn't have much to say about that one, but my disappointment is clear. I'd be disappointed if I expected more. So, you have a pit take. I do have a pith take. I know I told you guys I didn't have any plans to go to the theatre again before the end of 2022, but I did actually end up going to the theatre again before the end oh. of 2022. I went and saw a much smaller production. It was my first time sort of trying out community theatre. Mm. It was sort of a, a Christmas present for my mum and my grandma. I, I took them out and bought them dinner and took them to see at the Brisbane Arts Theatre One Man, Two Governors, which is... A 2011 comedy play, originally written by Richard Bean. It is based on the 1743 Italian play Servant of Two Masters, but this has updated it to 1963 Bristol. And there's lots going on here. It's very farcical, but basically this main guy, Francis, finds himself working as the assistant of two bosses, two governors in in the parlance of the time. And that's actually way more complicated than that sounds because there's all of these like competing subplots and things going on. It's very much are you being served or, you know, that kind of like a little bit of Monty Python. Like there's a lot of that kind of like absurdist, weird British humor running through it all. It was just a fantastic time. It's, it's a really fun play. It's absurd. It's silly. It's a very classic British farce. The characters are all pretty ridiculous um it, it breaks the fourth wall a lot in the way that the the characters sort of acknowledge the play that they're in and sometimes there was a bit of audience participation that was fun it's just a lot of happy nonsense very funny dialogue lots of slapstick uh i will say that it's probably very dependent on the actor's performance how well it works but like i said this is was my first time seeing such a small production a community theater production and the brisbane arts theater is small the it, it is smaller than most chapels so it's actually a very very contained space and it is community theater it was, it's a low budget they were clearly doing it for the love of it and i'm not going to lie there are some shaky elements that come attached to that a few flubbed lines some of the actors were a little bit wobbly there was this one moment where right so they have this like sort of as part of the scene they're sort of in the middle of the stage with a table with a empty wine bottle and two glasses on it and at the end of that scene the curtains close and then the next scene takes place in front of the curtains while a stage change happens behind the curtains but as the as the curtain was going across the stage, the table was right in the middle of the curtain's path. And so the curtain sort of like rode up onto the table, knocked the wine bottles and glass over and just shattered on the floor of the stage, like completely unintentional. And then that was this 
person was probably my MVP of the night was the person we could dimly see behind the curtain with their iPhone light on as they came in with a with a dustpan to sweep up all of the glass while the next scene was being played in front of them, in front yep. of the curtain. So you can sort of see the hand come out with the dustpan. And it was like, yeah, it's like, okay, that's a bit of fun. Like, this is a community theatre production. But, like, something that you, you get from that that you don't get with some of the, like, bigger, more professional stuff is is just the energy, though. Mm. There was so much immediacy with the audience. There was a real rapport with the audience and the actors that we were all having a lot of fun. It's more intimate. It's more intimate and there was more, like, more an immediate, like, connection with them, I suppose, because they weren't, like... I don't know. There's a sort of goodwill that comes attached with the let's put on a show thing yeah. of community theatre. They were all very enthusiastic cast members. I really enjoyed the energy that they brought. Some of them are better than others. There are a few standouts. My favourite, I think the audience's favourite as well, judging by all the laughter he got, was he was playing it to the back seats, but the back seats of a much bigger theatre. <laughs> um, and he was like a showstopper. He was funny every time. Like, it's just brilliant. But I will definitely try out more stuff like that going forward. I actually think, like, they are cheap tickets. They are less than $30 a ticket. And I actually think they would be good for us to go to together sometime because about once a year, they do a production of the Discworld plays that Terry Pratchett adapted from the books. Like, he adapted pretty much all of the books into plays, and they do one pretty much every year. So that might be a fun thing for us to check out together sometime. Mm. But yeah, that's my pith take. So that's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Pontypool. an actual radio broadcast. It is the only recording of the event. Roadblocks preventing people from leaving and entering the area. Everybody is under quarantine. Blood! Blood! We still do not have an official version of these events, and it's very difficult at this moment to get a fix on what has happened. Oh, God! They cut into our signal. Again? <laughs> Their eyes. He's looking at me. For your safety, please avoid contact with family members and restrain from the following. All terms of endearment. For greater safety, Not translate this message. Not translate. Just listen to me. That was the trailer for Pontypool. It's a horror movie. Let's just leave it at that. It's directed by Bruce McDonald, and it is based on the novel Pontypool Changes Everything by Tony Burgess. The film takes place almost entirely in a radio station in the small Canadian town of Pontypool. The morning DJ is Grant Mazzy, played by Stephen McHattie, whose nose is still bleeding from his sudden fall from grace. He used to be a much bigger fish in a much bigger pond, but he lost his job in Montreal 
after his abrasive on-air personality triggered one controversy too many. He's not particularly happy to be in Pontypool, and he makes that known to his station manager, Sydney Breyer, played by Lisa Houle, by generally making her life difficult. He's a little more receptive to Laurel Ann Drummond, played by Georgina Riley, the station's technical producer, perhaps because she seems the slightest bit starstruck by him. Grant is settling in for another uneventful evening of idle chatter when Sydney cuts in over his headset to tell him about a mob that has gathered in the main street of town. Grant perks up. This is the most interesting thing that's happened since he moved there. But that curiosity quickly turns to concern as the mob goes wild and begins hunting and killing random passers-by. As the day gets bloodier and more inexplicable, Grant finds himself in the spotlight once again, as he and Sydney preside over the most disturbing breaking news story of their lifetimes, however short they may turn out to be. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on this movie. And just to start off, I should say at the very beginning that um, John is the only one of the three of us who knew the turn this movie takes before seeing it. So that might colour our reactions in an interesting way. Uh, You ready, John? Three, two, one, go. I really liked this. I love the script and the way it's performed by the main actors. This is a very small movie. It's very much only set in the radio station, and you get a lot of really good stuff from that. You get a lot of great character work being done by the main three performers and the performer who plays the Doctor when he comes in. I love the turns of phrase in this movie, particularly one of them that we'll speak about later. But I really like this and the kind of horror that it was. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This one's on the more surreal end of horror. It's got a very interesting premise, and I think it's executed executed upon really, really well. I think how intimate the movie is is real strength, but it does show how cheap it is. But it doesn't need to go much bigger than it does, which I think is also working in its favor. It was a very smart choice of story to adapt. I really like this movie as well. I think that Stephen McCaddy is phenomenal as Grant Massey. I think he steals the whole show. I think it's really, really cool the way it is sort of like even beyond the horrorness of it. It's just a cool kind of like deconstruction of a breaking news story mm. in a small town's radio station. That's a lot of fun. I think that the third act especially is problematic. I think it kind of falls apart to a pretty big degree. And I think that the script, which has been so good up to that point, kind of becomes inexplicable. But I'm sure we'll get to that. Uh, I have a production history here, but it isn't particularly long. There's incredibly little info on this because, again, it is such a small movie. But as I mentioned, it is adapted from Tony Burgess's book, Pontypool Changes Everything. Uh, Burgess wrote the script and it, it was produced alongside a radio play version for Canadian public radio. Uh, It's difficult to tell which order, whether the play was produced first or whether the movie was. I did hear an interview with Burgess in which he claims that they uh, actually ended up filming the recording of the play. Like when they went to record the stuff for the play, like they had the radio station that they were recording it in and they just shot a lot of that stuff there. But I also in that same interview, he claims that CBC, which is Canadian Public Radio, lost interest and only returned to it after the movie came out. So I don't know what to take from that. 
Um, I did listen to the audio play, which is only about 50 minutes long, and it does use a lot of the move of the same audio as the movie, so I don't know quite what that ends up being. Regardless, it was inspired by Orson Welles' uh, War of the Worlds broadcast, which is, of course, the infamous broadcast from the, I think, the 1930s when Orson Welles and his radio company did a... Pr- a dramatization of the H.G. Wells novel War of the Worlds, but presented it as a, a news bulletin. And people who tuned in halfway through and heard the, the news bulletin style reporting on an alien invasion got super freaked out and thought it was actually happening. Just a, not really a piece of production history, just a bit of random trivia. Uh, Stephen McHattie and Lisa Houle are married in real life. Um, they were and are. Uh, and... Did you guys see the post-credit sequence? Yes. 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 That was originally pre-credits. That was originally just the last scene of the movie. But audiences rightfully got very confused. And uh, yeah. so they moved it to after the end credits. The film played festivals throughout late 2008 and early 2009 and then received a tiny release in the United States on the 29th of May 2009. And when I say tiny, I mean one theatre. Uh, it opened 92 at the box office against Up and Drag Me to Hell. No public information on the movie's budget is available. However, it only made $32,118 worldwide. Unsurprisingly, given that, it did not receive an Australian theatrical release. In fact, the only country other than the US that appears to have had a theatrical release were Canada and Turkey. Australians had to wait for a DVD release on the 13th of November 2009. The film has become a cult hit and received critical acclaim. It has an 84% Rotten Tomatoes rating, and the critics' consensus there reads, Witty and restrained, but still taut and funny, this Pontypool is a different breed of low-budget zombie film. The film did receive a tiny bit of awards recognition from some of the more genre-focused outlets. The uh, Saturn Awards nominated it for Best DVD Release, and the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards nominated Stephen McHattie for Best Actor. Ever since the movie has come out, uh, Burgess and uh, Bruce McDonald have been trying to get a sequel off the ground, uh, which would be called Pontypool Changes. But uh, cult hit doesn't count for much when you made less than the average price of a new car at the box office, so uh, they've not really been able to get funding for that, even though they have been trying for now pretty much 14 years. So I don't think it's going to happen. So let's sort of start off, I suppose, with the central idea. Might as well start off with the central idea of the movie, which is the idea of a sort of a mimetic virus, um, sort of a, a illness that travels through language, through our hearing a word and understanding it, and then that causing us basically to go insane and become part of this sort of drone-like packs of people wandering around eating. And I I didn't know that this was where the movie was going to go when I was watching it. I think I had read something about it years ago. I mean, it's one of the things that after it happened, I suddenly was like, oh, right. I kind of remember vaguely hearing about a movie that did that. But I hadn't connected the dots to this. Well, there are a couple of other movies that have done a similar thing. And I really, really love that as a concept it's so bizarre and strange and weird but i i think it's also a great allegory a great parallel to the idea of a shock jock you know this idea of you know language infecting things and making people very angry and violent uh, whereas 
they might not have been before. I think that's a great sort of uh, commentary on rhetoric on the shock jock as a concept, uh, even if it is maybe like not quite as as uh, vicious as it might be. If like for for all of the stuff, I'll grant you're so you're so controversial. He's not really. He's actually no. he's pretty cuddly shock jock. He's a pretty standard run of the mill shock jock because that's kind of the job. A lot of the most heinous ones are the ones who really go that extra mile into being terrible. Given the stuff that Shock Jocks survive career-wise, you find it hard to believe that any of the stuff that Grant's doing would get him fired. Maybe he just wasn't good enough at being a Shock Oh, come on. You listen to that opening intro with Stephen McCaddy doing that sexy radio voice. He's got a really good radio voice. Come on. He's good for radio, but maybe he's just... Not good at being the shock part of. No, shock maybe shock. he just pissed too much, too many people off at his place of work and got sacked. Mm. Well, we can talk about the characters in a minute, but let's let's stay on that um that idea of infectious language for a minute. I do want to hear from Harley because other than me, you didn't know it was coming either. In fact, you knew nothing about this movie at all. No, I had no idea about any of it, and. I think the idea of the auditory virus is a very fascinating one, because language itself is infectious. It has a quality to it where it can get inside of you. Like, think about something like a earworm. Yeah. Like, when you get a song stuck in your head, and you just can't get it out. Baby shock to do 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 Baby shock to do 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 Well, on, on that point, there's the songs that people play on and on and on. And the idea of language as communi- communicable virus is just a very fascinating one. And I think they handle it incredibly well in this story. And it's not every word that's infected. That's the important thing. Certain words are affected. English, specifically. English, specifically. And I think there's something to that, because Canada, which is where the whole story was originally set, it's a multilingual country, particularly in certain areas of Canada. Particularly, I don't know if it's got any relevance or not, particularly Montreal, which is where Grant Massey is coming from. Yeah, so there's a, there's a whole contingent of the country that's French-Canadian. So French is an incredibly significant language over there. I've got a couple of imported Blu-rays from Canada, they have the title in English, and then they have the title in French underneath on the main cover. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's a dual language country. And that sort of stuff is really, really interesting. And the way they dole out that information is, I think, incredibly, incredibly well done. Because as the movie's going on, you're starting to figure out that it has to be language that's doing it. I think, like, the moment where you really figure out, oh, I think this might be where it's going, is also one of the movie's best moments, which is when they get that French transmission that hijacks the radio from Mm. the authorities and that comes in, and then they have it translated and it's sort of reading out, like, avoid all terms of endearment. Yeah. And then at the end, please do not translate this message. (laughs) That sort of stuff is really strong. The part that got me is... He's lying here... In the dark, with his body, it's, it's broken to pieces, and his wrists, I, I can see them, they're stumps, they're not stumps, they're pointing up at his sides. No, I, Grant, I just, what are we doing? Listen, 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 listen. 
I don't even know how he's doing that. It's, it sounds like there's a, a child is screaming inside his breath. Is this actually happening, Ken? That was our own Ken Loney. That was our own Ken... Ken Loney... Interviewing... A screaming baby coming from Mary Galt's eldest son's last dying gasps. The movie relies a lot on description. The movie itself relies upon language. And that is brilliant. I love the way that Ken described the sound coming from this kid. Like a child screaming inside his breath. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I think what we're meant to be... What we're meant to take from that is that that is the actual guy trapped inside his own head, basically. Yeah. Like that if maybe if you went up to Laurel Ann... When she's hitting her head against the radio wall, like maybe if you incapacitated her and listened really closely, you'd hear something similar. Like maybe they're trying to speak something other than what they're saying and it's just not coming out. Like later on, the repetition of the word before they start going homicidal is their body trying to inoculate itself to the audio virus. Because the whole point is that it's the understanding of the word that infects you. And what's the best way to make a word lose all meaning? It's repetition. I loved how when Laurel started getting infected by it, when Sydney took the kettle off of the thing, she's just making that high-pitched noise. <clears throat> that is such a fantastic little, oh fuck, The part that moment. got me was when uh, the doctor started... Seemed like a nervous tick at first, the breathe, 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 breathe. But then you're like, oh no, that dude's infected. And that's some really strong stuff. I just like the fact that we're contained in the one location. Yeah. And that re- that makes them rely on description. That means they're relying on calls coming in from the outside. That's why we're relying on Ken. I do want to get onto that too in a minute, but I like that idea of like a basically real-time how a news agency reports something as it's coming in. There's this movie they've been trying to get off the ground for years, which is called, I think it's called Newsflash, which was going to star Seth Rogen, now is supposedly going to star Chris Pine, but we haven't heard about it in ages. But it's set in the newsroom of Walter Cronkite during and after the JFK assassination, like in real time as that's being reported. Um, And I think that's such a really interesting story. It's a really interesting way of way of looking at unpacking a a really important current event. I find that stuff really interesting, especially like all of the overlap as all of that new information's coming in and Grant sort of getting these competing things like Sydney's talking to him over the, over the thing as he's still talking. Like, I don't know how you would, you'd probably take a lot of practice to get like where you could just continue speaking into a microphone legibly and understandably while simultaneously getting understanding and ordering information over your headset from your producer. It is tough. We tried it a bit in the uh, journalism course. Not not, not like that, that though. intensely, 
but there's still a level of multitasking that you have to do in that. And it just it's something that comes with experience. And it's like good stuff the way that he it's another thing that I, I it's actually I think that Grant is more professional than the maybe the text of the movie sometimes makes him out to be, is that he's actually being very responsible about the stuff he's reporting on. Like, he hedges everything when he should hedge it. Well, he learned his lesson after the example at the start with the ice fishes. Yeah, but that was more a bad joke. That wasn't yeah. like him giving out inaccurate information or jumping the gun on anything. But I think it's, it's interesting the way that he sort of hedges that and the way that he sort of... It's interesting how quickly, and I like it actually, how quickly he and Sydney become allies once the shit starts hitting the fan. Like, he drops the... He drops the bullshit and he starts doing the work. Yeah, I, d- I appreciate how he drops the whole being controversial for controversy's sake when it's clear that something is going wrong at that doctor's office and this herd of people is moving. Well, the way that he's genuinely concerned about Ken. Mm. Yeah. And, like, get it like, no, Ken, don't, don't go closer. I wouldn't do that, Ken. <laughs> Just stay where you are, Ken. <laughs> And it goes to show that even when a character is not on screen, they're giving a hell of a performance Hmm. with just their voice. Like, the guy who voices Ken is incredible. I do want to loop back to something, um, John, is that Harley and I both talked a little bit about about not knowing that this was coming. But, like, as someone who did know, were you picking up anything in the early stages that seemed significant to you, knowing where the where things were going? It just seemed interesting the repetitions and how how quickly it sort of slides into being a crisis. And I I appreciated seeing the information be sort of drip fed and then all at once to Grant and Sydney and Lowell. I found that to be very interesting and seeing where a word gets stuck in someone's head and then it seems to start having an effect. Like when Lowell starts saying, I'm not missing Mr. Mazzy, missing Mazzy, and that whole thing, like pinpointing where a person gets whammied. And it becomes then, almost a stutter. Yeah, and I like the way that Mazzy puts it that when he was a kid, he would repeat words until they meant nothing. And that his theory is that that's the body trying to inoculate itself against this mimetic virus. And I found that What it actually reminded me of is a condition called asphasia, which where air has been restricted to the brain and there's no blood going through and the language centers become affected. It makes thought difficult. It really reminded me of that. I got the impression that the doctor was somehow involved. I don't. I think we're supposed to think that. I think ultimately that's revealed not to be. That's a red herring. That's a misdirect because they're like how he's under investigation for writing unnecessary prescriptions. Yeah, that that's why they think initially the mob is outside of his clinic, but actually it seems to have nothing. It just seems to be circumstance. Like someone had the bug and was just walking down the street ranting. Someone else got it, and eventually it's a like snowball running down a hill, and it's just picking up body as it goes along. Something else is happening. It's happening before the day because he encounters that woman on the road, and she has it. She has it at that point, and he's probably good that he didn't roll the window down. But I think that that the way that it starts with just the photo of the voice wave, the sound wave of the voice, 
and sort of talking about language and just the way that Grant repeats a lot of that stuff. Well, this bridge, now slightly damaged, is a bit of a local treasure and even has its own fancy name, Pont de Flac. Now, Colette, that sounds like culotte. That's petty in French. And piscine means pool, petty pool. Flac also means pool in French, so Colette piscine. In French, Patty Pool drives over the Pont de Flac, the Pont de Pool, if you will, to avoid hitting Mrs. French's cat that has been missing in Party Pool. Party Pool. Party Pool. Patty Pool. Pont de Flac. What does it mean? Kind of makes me wonder if he's the genesis of it. Is he an asymptomatic caviar? Well, has he been broadcasting the trigger word to people and not knowing? Hmm. That's interesting. Now that I think about it, when he gets into work, he's talking to uh, Laurel Ann, and it's like, as he, it's as he's going in, because it's over the loudspeaker outside as he's walking in as well. They're playing a repeat of that same thing. Hmm. So while they've got no one manning the booth, they're p- playing that um, missing cat monologue over again. Ah, uh, maybe it's the fact they had it repeating that infected people initially. Or if it's... Pontypool or Point du Pont, or it's the thing about language that he's talking about at the top. I actually think that's really significant, that monologue. I do want to just, um, I will see if I can, uh, the Pontypool radio play, I actually think is a little bit better as an ending because specifically it has to remain inside the radio booth for it to make sense. Mm-hmm. Like that's the gimmick of the thing. They have to change the ending pretty substantially. Uh, so a lot of the audio from the first two-thirds of the play is the same as the movie. But by the time they get to the end, it's actually, I think, a darker ending because you have all of that same exchange between Grant and Sydney right up to the end. And um, instead of saying, kiss me, she says, kill me, meaning kiss me, huh. you know? And that's when you're like, oh. And that's when it cuts after that to the audio of Grant doing the, here are all the people that died today which is in the movie, but much earlier. I do love that sequence. But then at the end, he's like, and also Sydney Breyer, that Sydney has died from this. She didn't, he didn't succeed. And it's much more, it's much darker because it's basically like him. It didn't work, his whole plan. And he's talking at the end. You know, I should tell you that, um, that uh, I started to notice something strange. A while ago. And I decided I'm going to, uh, as long as I can, I'm going to stay alive by talking. And I feel drawn right now to the word paper. <clears throat> I don't feel compelled to say it yet. But I can feel it sitting there like an itch. I have an infected word and it'll spread. <clears throat> Soon all I'll want to say is paper. Oh, There. You see, I felt that, to say that word, paper. It's like my hand brushed over it and for a second, relief. Paper. Wonder when I heard who said it to me. Paper. Now what was that? Something else moved in there. Something's trying to erase me. Each word. There's another. Each word that it takes, I get 
smaller. It takes me in the things I say and the words that I think. It's not safe to be what I say. You don't understand this. This is least. I'm a thing that may not have even happened on paper, that may not have been hiding. Paper. 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 Trap. I thought that was relevant as like a description of the feeling. Mm, yeah. And also that the last word is trap. Like the virus basically has tricked him at the end. That he was trying to do that stay alive by talking, say anything but paper, until finally, the, like almost like a trick, like a trap, the virus gets him to say it through a turn of phrase and that he's stuck on it. Mm, mm. I think it's, it is interesting and... The way that it's sort of inexplicable how it's developed and the fact that you can't really describe it. As, you can describe it as a virus, but that's not wholly accurate. It's sort of unknowable and inexplicable. And I find that very fascinating. There is a bit too. of a cosmic maybe that Maybe it's a cosmic horror movie. Maybe that's the genre that we're looking at here. But like... And again, how much of the play do you want to pull in versus the book versus the movie? But like the, the, that line there in the play, something wants to erase me. Mm. Mm. There's like an implied intent there. Yeah. There's like like some, like the earworm as an idea, as like a, an actual parasitic thing. That's interesting. I do think in comparison to that ending in the movies, I think if there is something to recommend the movies over that, I do prefer the radio plays ending over the movies. No, but, I do, yeah. but the uh, the way that the movie ends with them bombing the radio station, basically, the call that um, Sydney gets just before where the French-Canadian soldiers just basically, like, get him off the air, he's infected. I think that kind of does suggest that what I was saying before is right, that he is the Typhoid Mary of Pontypool. His broadcast was reaching everybody. Yeah, and that that is, like, especially all of that stuff they do at the end about how it might be popping up elsewhere. Mm. Like, particularly with the bloke from the BBC and how he starts repeating the words. Exactly. Whether that creates a greater connective tissue there with um, with the idea that Grant is at the centre of things, which I think would, would then work with the allegory, the parallel of the idea of rhetoric and aggressive rhetoric sort of being an infectious thing, the sort of shock jock as, as patient zero of the... Uh, making everyone angrier and dumber. <laughs> Violent. Yeah. I think that your point about the cosmic horror of it is very interesting because it reminded me of The Empty Man, of the idea that it's not this biological thing. By all intents and purpose, it's not real, but it is still affecting the real world in a very tangible way. It's like tulpas and how mm. the power of the human mind can get to a point where it can affect the real world. Yeah. So it also reminded me of the happening, that this is just something that up and popped up one day, 
and that it has seemingly ended, but is popping up somewhere else. Yeah, and I do find it interesting that it is language that is doing it. I feel like that is, in particular, so fascinating that it's set in a radio station, and that we are recording a podcast about it in English, which seems to be... I don't know, there's just something meta and funny about that. The fact that we are sort of... That discussing the movie in itself is almost carrying forth the virus, quote-unquote. I have a quote here from the director, Bruce McDonald. He says that they're not zombies. He calls them conversationalists. (laughs) And he has a, a quote here where he sort of explains the virus in greater detail. There are three stages to this virus. The first stage is you might begin to repeat a word. Something gets stuck. And usually it's words that are terms of endearment, like sweetheart or honey. The second stage is your language becomes scrambled and you can't express yourself properly. The third stage, you become so distraught at your condition that the only way out of the situation you feel as an infected person is to try and chew your way through the mouth of another person. Jesus. So that's what they're doing. They're not necessarily eating them, although they are eating them, I suppose, in a way. But, like, you know how there is the, those viruses that um, that once you're infected, it's sort of part of the programming of the virus as it takes over the brain is to program the carrier to spread the virus further. Yeah. And you see it mostly in animals, not so much in humans. Like cordyceps. Whether that's kind of what that same thing is, is that, like, they're trying to spread it and when they can't, that's when they're, like, revert to, like, physical attacking. Mm. Mm. Literally going for the mouth seems important. But then also I think that all that stuff, the idea of Grant being infected, I think that that seems to gel with the third act, which I'm not a big fan of because I think that the language becomes really messy and Mm. the way characters talk starts to become sort of inexplicable in a way that only really makes sense if they're all infected and don't know it. Like the way that, like how Grant's language starts to slip and it happens gradually, which I think is interesting. But like that line... That was our own Ken whatever um, interviewing a screaming baby coming from Mary Galt's eldest son's last dying gasps. Is that really what you would say in that circumstance? It isn't. It's already him starting to scramble. And then there's the stuff where he sort of like hears crying himself and starts looking around the radio station. Well, his um, when he breaks down emotionally. But then also, and it especially starts... Once he leaves the booth and there's that bit where he he thinks he might leave before ultimately he decides not to and that gets around it anyway. Everyone's language really starts to slip there and they all start to speak in a much sort of clumsier fashion in a way that didn't really work for me specifically because none of them seem to be aware of it. Mm. That's the part that is a problem for me is that it becomes clumsy and inexplicable yet they don't realise that even though they should, even though they're perfectly able to recognise that as it's happening to them. Well, I think part of that comes down to the fact the movie is, I think, a bit too long. Yeah, you're right. I think that it doesn't really have the the petrol to sustain the third act. Mm. Like, one of my favourite sequences is the In Memoriam. Mm. I love the way that it's link to link, like how a group of people died, and the way that he says it is... Gwendolyn Parker 
was taken from this life in her 45th year by her beloved husband, Stanley, who left this world suddenly at the hand of family members Fiona and Michael, who then died at each other's hands in their 12th and 17th years, respectively. Janice Gwynn has departed from her abiding husband and by his own hand in the 34th year of her life. Jack Gwynn survived long enough to add four names. Paul Heighton, 43, Alice Heighton, 42, Brenda Heighton, 12, and young Jesse Heighton, 10, to a list of passages before himself losing his life as a result of an accident. Greg Owen, 56, has been killed by Yolanda Owen, 61, who also removed Frida Owen, 81, Patsy Owen, 12, John Freethy, 33, Peter Stamp, 38, and Leslie Reed, 42, who had between them caused the untimely passings of Joel Froth, 67, Sandra Waden, 23, Tim Drummond, 17, Cynthia Drummond, 46, Darren Drummond, 51, and Alicia Drummond, 91. The Drummonds were survived on Cynthia's side by the Hinman family until shortly before noon today, when they were sadly removed from this world by a bus driven by the recently departed Brenda Lockland, 43, who was missed briefly by her husband Gary, 37, now deceased. You're listening to In Memoriam on CLSY Radio. Again, it's not quite the way you would, and I think that's why Grant Mazzie is the carrier, because of his command of language, because... For a good part of it, he doesn't care. He's saying the words to get point across. He's repeating what's put in front of him to say when he's on the radio. Well, he's a talker. He talks for a living. Like, that's his job, is to communicate. He's a talker, not a listener. And that's why I think he is the carrier. I think it's a good enough theory. But then I I think that after the Doctor arrives, they should never leave the booth. No. I think they should they should no. remain in that room for the rest of the thing. I think that the Doctor should figure out at one point that either Sydney or Grant is infected, start talking in his native language, and then leave. Yeah. Because I think that Doctor, like, I think it's kind of like when he starts talking in his native language, like, he just switches away from English entirely. I think that's a really, like, that guy got away. I love the performance of that Doctor. How... Even if this is a very terrifying situation, Laurel's bashing herself against the glass of the booth. He's like, this is fascinating. But then, like, they give him a funny look and he's like, oh, and truly horrifying. Defies all reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, he he can't stop that part of his brain. Like, the gleeful child. And when Laurel Ann stops for a moment, he's like, oh, that's new. The childlike glee of a kid. I, I don't know, pouring different soft drinks together just to see if they would work. Putting a Mentos in a bottle of Coke or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I I think he he comes into the movie right when they need another perspective on things, and he's able to actually explain parts of the plot that weren't getting across with just Laurel, Grant, and Sid. Yeah. We've revealed the knot. We've revealed the knot that needs untangling, but the characters we've already got at that point can't untangle that for the audience. You know, we need someone to come in and say, like, without without sacrificing all of the ambiguity and the mystery, but to come in saying, I think these are the rules. I think this is how it works. It's language. And to really, like, say it. That's why I kind of prefer that ending of the radio play that you showed us. Mm. The fact that, Mazzy didn't outsmart it. The fact that the killer's kiss, killer's kiss didn't work. Yeah. I prefer that because 
watching it now is incredibly prescient. The idea of a virus, the idea of the power of dangerous rhetoric, the discussions of insurrection. The power that words have. The power of words. There's the discussion with the guy from the BBC, and the way that Grant kind of clamps up, and he's like, we actually don't really know anything right now. You might have more information than us. And at that point, he still thinks it's a hoax. He still thinks it's a prank. I think that that's interesting is that Nigel is basically Grant if Grant was still in Montreal. Yeah. Yeah. That he just wants the story. Whereas now, all of a sudden, Grant is being much more responsible because he's in the middle of it. It's happening to people he knows. Yeah. And I find it interesting that there is that war over the definition of what this is. That that disagreement on the interpretation of events. Is it insurrection or is it something more inexplicable? It's not political. It's not all of this stuff. But from an outside perspective, that is a different understanding of what is happening. I think the competing things that the audience is left to ask with, ultimately, beyond the parallel and the allegory, is, is it viral or is it an invasion? Basically, is the has is whatever is taking hold of these people conscious in and of itself? Because I think there is stuff to suggest that. The radio play definitely implies that, like you said, with the whole something is trying to push me out. Yeah, and trap. And I think it's kind of interesting that it's almost the Pontypool incident can act as sort of a dirty bomb. As in, when someone understands what's happened in Pontypool, that is the trigger for the virus to start again. Does that happen over the voiceover, over the credits? One of the newsreaders just goes, and that's the events that happened in Pontypool. 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 Which is the word that Grant was repeating over and over again in the initial monologue that then gets replayed when he's out of the booth. Because mm-hmm. Pontypool sounds itself like a nonsense word, but it actually means that place. It it has an understandable meaning. There are multiple meaning. places called that. Which is why um, it can't really work as a, a trick that he's trying to play ultimately on, on the virus. As you say, kill means kiss, kill means kiss, kill means kiss. The meaning, like, you don't change the meaning in your mind when you repeat something over and over again. You lose the meaning. Hmm. And if you're if you're constantly focused on changing the meaning or losing the meaning, then you're never going to change or lose the meaning. If you say, don't think about elephants, you immediately think about an elephant. If you say, you know, lose the meaning of, of kiss, it's not like you are going to just through repute repetition lose the understanding of what that word means because you're so hyper focused on the word it's impossible for it to work the oxymoronic statement of stop understanding and like that comes to the whole idea of english the fact that it only affects english the fact that english itself is a bastard language english has roots in latin french welsh it's got all these different Languages it is drawing from the English language as parasite. Oftentimes we hear that the English language is the most inelegant. Yeah, we have all these multiple words with the same things, words that mean different things depending on the context. It's supposed to be one of the most difficult languages to learn for a lot uh, for a non-native speaker. Yeah, like, and that's a very interesting idea that it's only affecting the English language because of its because of its bastardry, you could say. It's Frankenstein-esque 
formation. That itself is incredibly interesting because we consider English as a global language. It's the language of business, the language of commerce, the language of a great deal of media. It's interesting. It has a sort of cultural dominance, even if it's not technically accurate. Like, we are, English is not, not nearly the most spoken languages worldwide. Let me actually pull that up. Most spoken languages in the world. I believe that, um, yeah, Chinese is, um, is the most spoken language by native speakers. By sheer volume, you would, I would imagine. Mandarin Chinese, 920 million native speakers. Uh, Spanish is second with 475 native, mm. million native speakers, so a huge drop. And then another big drop again to English at number three with 373. So it's actually like almost three times more Chinese speakers in the world than English. But still, the, the prominent place English has among those languages. Yeah, like that cultural dominance, exactly. The English language as virus. When you look at movies like, well, I think immediately Parasite as a movie that's very vested in language. Parasite, in Parasite, they use English words often interspersed with Korean. And that in itself shows how the English language has like burrowed its way in. And it's used as a marker of class in as Parasite, well. In Parasite, definitely. And that is what's so English interesting about in Pontypool how it only affects English and there's definitely something to that I'm just trying to think about what is the end point of this can this audio virus develop can it evolve into other languages can it can one become inoculated to it like an actual virus what's the Omicron variant <laughs> the Omicron variants when it like breaches Greek or something <laughs> I don't know when stop when people start speaking bullshit. The Uno variant is when it goes into Spanish. Oh, haha. almost everyone on the planet knows about COVID nineteen by that word, COVID nineteen. People know it as the coronavirus world over, and the way that that has infected the thought form in itself. Like, there's so much interesting stuff to do with language that gets spurred on by the film. And it also stuff to do with, as you said, it's a mimetic virus, and it goes viral through people like a meme or video or song goes viral through the internet. What do you guys make of the post credit scene? I think it was just a bit of fun. What it is, is it's a little teaser for the next movie. Not in the Pontypool series, but the next movie that that team made. They did make something that was sort of so supposed to be spiritually similar, but that wasn't planned at the time that they made Pontypool. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I have seen a, a variation of criticism or, or a theory analysis of that scene that suggests that this is sort of like a like like an elaborate fiction that the whole world now has to uphold to stave off the virus, like that they are talking in old timey dialogue. To stave off the virus that like there is that thing where um sydney drops the act towards the end of that scene and grant goes mm. as if like there's some danger there like a post-apocalyptic yeah a post-apocalyptic like this is how we still maintain our lives is that we all basically play a part yeah there's been a linguistic apocalypse and we have to find out how to communicate after that i think that's an Interesting reading. I don't think it, I think it, it's a bit of a stretch, 
I think it doesn't really explain why it's in black and white and mm. why they're still alive. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I think it was just a bit of fun, personally. Well, it that, well you say that, you say that, but consider the fact that it was originally supposed to play before the credits. That it originally wasn't a post-credit scene, that it was originally supposed to cut from the the kiss as the roof goes down to black, fade back up to them in a cafe. Jeez, I don't... I just think it's unnecessary. It is. It confuses me. They were right to move it. In fact, I would argue they would have been right to cut it entirely. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it's a weird little question mark at the end of the movie that I, of, of everything in the movie, that's the one thing I have a really hard time grappling with. Which might be the point, but then again, it doesn't seem like that's the point. Uh, anyways, is there anything else that you guys would like to add? No, I think that's about it. I just want to commend the movie for being so legit about the way that a radio station is run, particularly a low-budget local radio station. I wouldn't station. call them the- low-budget. <laughs> well, well, the the sort of drip-feeding of information outside, the fact they don't have a helicopter, <laughs> just it's just a bloke on a hill, on a hill <laughs> in his car with sound effects. <laughs> the fact that they're trying to make this sort of illusion of them being more than they are, the, the way that they use the the equipment mm. is very like they are a tightly run ship and they all seem like old hands at the job i feel like i want to commend them for being so legit to the actual way that it's i would run. be very fascinated to see this translated to the stage i think it has been in some places like i i just think it would be very fascinating to see what it would be like in set today what how, what changes? How does it? How does the virus have to change? Yes, it has. It has been adapted into a play. It hasn't. It's been mostly smaller community theater adaptations. Mm. But actually, um, apparently, Tony Burgess got a lot of um, got so many people asking if they could turn it into a play that he just wrote a play version himself. Yep, that's nice. That's and fun. you can you can buy a copy of it online. That would have been the easiest bloody transition between. Basically, all you'd need to do is change the, like, instead of filming directions, turn it to stage directions, and you're done. There, there's something so beautiful and simple about the way that this is done that it can be an audiobook, it can be a novel, it can be a play, it can be a radio play. As long as it uses language. I'm sending you a photograph of the stage of one of these community theatre adaptations. So the way it seems like they structure it is that Grant, in the booth, the desk is towards the audience, and then in the background behind a pane of glass, you can see the booth with the producers in. Hmm, that's fun. Either that or it's the other way around. That might be the booth back there with with, um, Laurel Ann in front after she's gone crazy. Yeah, I think it is. I really like the... I mean, not only are the vocal performances good, but the just the performances are all around really good. And they are exactly that mix between not fully understanding, but using that as a strength of the performance. Also, the sound design is incredible, because you, you get those like echoes of words in the, the soundscape. The audio designer for the movie must have had a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I love how much of Stephen McHattie's, like, I, I, how did you deal with his mouth sounds Not on well. the radio? Because I know you don't like mouth Not sounds. Not well. But I, I felt that that added a certain ver- verisimilitude, especially like 
the way that he gets more sloppy with it as the movie goes on and he starts to lose it a bit. Like, I'm generally fine with breathing. It's the wet ones that really <laughs> piss me off. Yeah. Which is why you will very rarely find those in the episodes that you listeners are listening to, because I know that Harley and I take extreme care. You will definitely not hear them in any of the ones I edit. I tend to be a little more relaxed, but not too relaxed. I, I remove them if they're um Egregious. if they're distinct from the um mm. from out from a specific word. See, but the thing just as I'm editing, when those sounds happen, it's almost like I'm being attacked. <laughs> so I take almost violent oh, joy in extracting it from you the You two edit. are such drama queens. <laughs> well we did study theatre. Anyways, uh so now why don't we move on to say who our MVP for this movie is, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast, Patron Saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? Me! <laughs> I'll start us off and I'll say that my MVP here has got to be Stephen McHattie. I think that he is, he's a really good actor, and I think he is one of those actors who's just like crying out for a smaller independent movie like this where he gets to like have a lead role and do something really interesting because when you see him in other things he is a character actor he's in a supporting role and he's not like a like a Bill Nye kind of character actor or John Lithgow kind of character actor either he tends to be in pretty small roles in the stuff you see him in and you guys have seen him before he is uh, as Paulus Mason yeah exactly he is um the original Night Owl in Watchmen he's actually a Snyder repeat player uh he was the the loyalist that tries to work with gerard butler's wife in uh 300 to get help for them Hmm. but yeah he's really good i think he's got a great sort of like radio voice a great deep radio voice kind of reminds me of tom waits yeah he does he has a bit of that vocal fry that i think i like a bit of vocal fry it's it's got character yeah it gives a voice character and um and he just, he does have a soothing, like, I would listen to him narrate audiobooks in that voice. Mm, yeah. He's really good, too, I think, just as a performance. I think as a performance, as everything's losing it, as he is trying to maintain control on air, I think it's just a strong performance, and so i got to give that to him. In terms of uh, my favourite scene or sequence, I do think it's got to be that moment where it kind of clicked for me. It's got to be the... When everything's really losing it in the first time and they're just trying to figure out what's going on and then they get that translated message that ends with, please do not translate this message. (laughs) That's where it really works for me. I think it's got a great sense of like that. It's one of the creepiest moments in the movie. In fact, it's it really it was either going to be this or the baby screaming inside that guy's breath. (laughs) Um, But it's it's just the moments (laughs) where the rising inexplicability combined with the quietly you as an audience member are figuring out what it is. I mean, it's a really cool trick for the movie to pull and it gives the audience respect and it gives the audience agency in basically creating those moments. So I've got to go with that. In terms of who I've recast with John Lithgow, I mean, it's got to be uh, Grant, right? I mean, it's a great role for him. In fact, it's the only role for him, unless you want to, like, cast him as Dr. Mendez, which I think is would be culturally inappropriate, unless you change that to a different surname. But then, you know, that's sort of tied to the fact that he is he is not from an English-speaking background. That's why he gets out of there in the end. So I don't think John Lithgow would work. But John Lithgow would work great as Grant, as this sort of radio guy. I think he's got a similar kind of, like, smooth 
radio voice when he wants to have them. Mm. I have a smooth radio voice. I've heard little bits and pieces of that audio book you've been listening to, Harley, and he definitely can do that. And I think that he would be able to bring that same sort of level of character and dimension to the role that I think works so well in what McHattie's doing. Um, and I, we would be able to see John Lithgow wear a cowboy hat. And this yeah. is this is positive, you know. Even though, as a general rule, I, I tend not to like it when people wear hats indoors. Because mm. it just, at that point, it's just a shitty affectation, really. <laughs> like, your personality is not interesting enough. You've got to wear a big hat. At that point, it's no longer functional. It's an accessory. Okay, does the size of a hat make it, like, worse or slightly better? Both. I, I think, like, I think if it's the right size, then it's not as bad. You know, if it's a... If it's like a Santa hat, it's like, that's a costume. Yeah, but if it's like, like, just a, a utility hat, it's like, okay, it's sort of, the affectation is a little less. But if it's like a giant cowboy hat, that's like, okay, yeah, this is a bit of performance. Or like a really tiny one with like the little, little propeller on top. Uh, oh, one of the um, silly ones, yeah. Yeah. If it's cultural or spiritual that you wear wear a hat indoors, then sure, I've got no problem with it. That's not an affectation. That's just, mm. you know, that's just your background. But if it's like, you know, people walking in wearing, like people who walk in wearing cowboy boots and a hat when they're in the shopping mall in the middle of the city, it's like, all right, guy, come on. Like, you just want us to know that you're a, you, you consider yourself to be a country person, you know? You, you didn't trust your own personality enough to give us that information to begin with, so you decided to wear pretty much the only more obvious thing you could have done is wear a sign. Mm. Yeah. Or a little badge that says, Hi, I'm Representative Catter, and I'm from the country. <laughs> uh, for Bob Catter, that's his image. That's though, his right? image, but, like, take it off when you're indoors, mate. <laughs> what a barking dog of a man. Incredible to watch. I don't like his politics, but I will always love that clip of Bob Catter with the, the gay marriage plebiscite thing where he's just like, oh, let a thousand, thousand blossoms bloom. I mean, you know, people are entitled to their sexual proclivities. You know, I mean, let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. You know, but I ain't spending any time on it because in the meantime, every three months, I person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. <laughs> yeah. It's just like... Honestly, Bob. It's like a switch. Go <laughs> Slay queen. Incredible. Uh, but yeah, that's Austin's opinions on hats. Uh, I would have to say my MVP is Tony Burgess. This is a story that relies on language. And I kind of have to credit the author with that. It's got a lot of clever turns of phrase. I adore how language sort of, like, devolves when people get infected. It starts the repetition and all of that. That's great. I think he really considered all of the different elements involved in the story. And I just like movies set in radio station. We need more of those. I would have to say my favorite scene or sequence is the obituary, with the black and white images of the people, with the way that Burgess writes and the way that McHattie is saying the lines, it's it's just really, really good shit. Uh, and the whole such and such proceeded to be ended by such and such who took their own life. Like, that sort of thing. Like, he, he stretches the definitions so he can avoid saying killed by or 
dead. And I think that's brilliant. Is it one run-on sentence? It feels like it. Does he ever like break? It. Yeah, it feels like it's just the one long chain. And that, I think that's outstanding. Stretching those commas to their breaking point. I would have to say the only person you get Lithgow as is as Mazzy. I think he has an outstanding voice for performance. Like Lawson said, I've been listening to the audiobook for his autobiography, and I think he could really nail it. He is obviously a great performer to watch, but he's also a very considered performer when he's speaking. And not all actors are that way. And again, it is also the only role for him <laughs> in the show. Yeah, for me, I give my MVP to Stephen McCarty. He's got the perfect voice for this, and not only does he look the part and sound the part, but the performance is generally just fantastic. Particularly when he still thinks this is a hoax and is like, fuck off, I'm leaving. And then, seeing the danger outside, decides staying would be in his best interest. I think the slow slide into believing the situation is very well portrayed by McCaddy. For my favorite scene or sequence, it's got to be that call with Ken Loney where he's talking about the kid who has come into the place where he's hiding, and you just hear the baby talk through the voice. And the way that it's been described has painted such a vivid picture of it that it just becomes this really horrifying moment, particularly with that turn of phrase, a baby speaking through it baby screaming through his breath that is when i heard it i got chills that's the power of language and for who i would get john lithgow to play part of me definitely does want him to play grant there's very clear reasons why i mean cowboy hat you get him doing that monologue at the beginning it's john lithgow i mean it's perfect part of me also would think things can would be an interesting character, that it's just his voice. Because that would make it more likely to get someone like Lithgow. The fact that they would only have to be in a booth to, to do the job. But I do think Grant is the one that you would, wa- you would want. Give him that aesthetic in the movie. Yeah. Make it a leather jacket, that's his look for Pontypool. Well then, now why don't we do our official vote on whether we are a pro Pontypool podcast... I will start us off. I'll say that I've actually, despite how much I admire this movie and what it's doing, I still got to vote no. I really like it, but like at the end of the day, I don't think it's successful at what it's trying to do. I think that third act really kind of tams it in a lot of ways. It's very entertaining, but like I can't deny that it's a bit of a of a wet splat of an ending to a first two thirds that I've been really really liking. And the fact that it can't stick that landing when the whole point of the movie is that, the fact that it can't accomplish its stated intent, uh, despite my admiration for it, that means I've got to go no. Even though I think this is a very compelling movie, very rewatchable. I would listen to Stephen McCaddy read the phone book, but I, I can't go there. I would have to agree with you, Lawson. Like I said earlier, it just runs out of gas. It is a premise kind of built for the radio play. 50 minutes, one continuous moment. That is incredibly strong, conceptually. But to stretch it out to the running time of this movie, it starts to wear thin. It's like it's like that line from Lord of the Rings. It's 
piece of toast, but the butter is spread too thin. And I really, really dig the first two thirds. It's just that in that last third, it kind of, it falters. And when it falters, it stumbles, trips, and falls. With an ending as tight as the audio play, I think it could have been way more successful at that. But as it stands, it's got a weak ending. Plus that weird confusing bit at the end, I have no idea what they're doing. I still really liked it though, so it's it's pretty far from a no, but it's not a pro vote either. And much to my own disappointment, I do have to agree with you guys. Up until the ending, this is brilliant. It's tightly written, tightly performed, very well put together from a filmic standpoint, but it does run out of gas. It starts having issues with knowing where it wants to take the story, and it's too long for its own good. Plus, having that ending with the weird noir speak, it really just shouldn't have been in the movie. It doesn't help put forward the themes or the thesis statement of the film. It's just confusing because it makes no sense, and not in a good way. And I feel like the ending would have been much better served with the ending of the either the book, which seems fairly unfilmable, and the ending of the radio play, which seems like could have been an easy shoo-in. What is the ending to the book, by the way? I didn't look that up. Oh, it just devolves into gibberish. The book does? Yeah. That's kind of cool. I like that. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's brilliant. It's kind of like House of Leaves in that regard. The It kind of like turns into nonsense. Yeah, the structure of the thing is the story in some yeah. ways. So... I'm very high-level ambivalent. It just needed to stick that landing a bit, a bit so better. So, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are not a pro Pontypool podcast. Aww. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Extra Do The Candy Count, if I join myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. Episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. Yes. As you can probably tell, I've said it a lot. It has become almost nonsense for me. You're saying it too fast. I know, I like to see how fast I can go. You can also leave us movie recommendations on the Twitter. What do you think about Ponty Paul? Uh, do you like movies set in radio stations? I know a few of them. I can't bring them to the names to mind at the moment, but I always like seeing how like news stations and radio stations function. I'll tell you what, I'll drop one for you. The, the Oliver Stone movie Talk Radio, which is based on a play, and it is basically about a shock jock, but a much nastier one than Grant Massey, basically um, having a nervous breakdown on air over the course of one recording session. It's really, really good. I strongly recommend it. I like watching those movies where you see the behind-the-scenes sort of stuff. That's always really compelling. Uh, you can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that on certain podcast apps, you're leaving a comment on specific episodes. But also in others, it's for the entire show. Just if you have the feedback for the episodes, just mention what episode you're talking about on those services. Like, comment, and subscribe. I was able to meet for him. The meeting was only brief, though. He has a lot of stuff to do, being the world's preeminent actor and magician. He got into magic, stagecraft. <laughs> oh, that's nice. He's, he's the right kind of energy for, like, being a stage magician, you know, doves out of hats and... If we learn tomorrow that John Lithgow was a was a talented and, a, and accomplished amateur magician, 
it wouldn't really surprise any of us. No, it just makes sense. Uh, he said his people are going to look into it, as <laughs> this people. may become a more significant issue if other people start, you know, getting information this way. He obviously has connections pretty high up with the machines, as they are all huge fans of him. Of course, I did keep some details to myself. I didn't say anything about Truthbot and the fact that he can also reach into the past. I get the feeling that I can learn more from him by keeping him close. Lawson, what do we have next week? I believe that we are going to be reliving a very tragic and insane year of our lives. Yes, it's our first time doing a documentary. No, it's, uh, <laughs> it is the Roland Emmerich disaster movie 2012. One of the most quickly aged films ever made. Uh, most quickly out-of-date movies <laughs> ever produced, for at least for that much money. Also, one of the silliest, very expensive movies that has ever existed. Our first full-scale disaster movie, really. If you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Binge, Foxtel Now, and Stan, as well as for purchase or rental on the Amazon, YouTube, Telstra, and Fetch stores. Uh, it is... Sorry. Um as well as for rental on the Amazon, YouTube, Telstra, and Fetch stores. You can also available... Uh, sorry. As well as for purchase or rental on the Amazon, YouTube, Telstra, Fetch, and Apple stores. You can also find it available... As well as for purchase or rental on the Fetch, Apple, Amazon, and YouTube <laughs> stores. You can also find it available for rental only on the Telstra store. However, it is only available in 4K on the Stan and Apple stores. And I would recommend, if you can, seeing it in 4K, because that's some really good-looking destruction. Oh, like, hands down. Okay, I have to ask the question, were you just doing a bit, or were you actually getting no, stuck? No, I was getting stuck because they've redone the um, the layout for Just Watch, and I keep finding, like, there's bits hiding in the corner. I need to scroll along to find if that's everything that is, whereas normally that will be grouped together. Can we keep that? Because that sounded like you were doing a bit based on Ponzi Ball. It sounded like you were infected. 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 All right, fine. Infected. That worked so well. I legitimately thought you were joking. Uh, So join us next week for when we take a trip back to 2012. Uh, Until then, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I will have been continued to be Jean Lewis. (laughs) Jesus. Continue to be. We'll have. Continue to be. We'll continue to be Jean Lewis. Bye. Daddy shark, 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 daddy